Somebody Somewhere is a production of Rainstream Media Incorporated. This podcast investigates a murder that occurred in 2001. It is a true story, but the opinions of the hosts and interviewees are simply that, opinions, not facts. And the credibility of the witnesses and what they say is to be determined by the listener. Everyone is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Hi, I saw your webpage about your campaign to make AR-15s illegal in Washington State. I hope somebody walks up to you with their AR-15 and sprays your brain, blood, and guts all over the pavement. Now, I wouldn't do it because I don't approve of it, but if somebody did, I would stand up and cheer. We have all been there. We have all had something in our lives that keeps us awake at night, tossing and turning. I'm in one of those phases right now. And that phone call right there, that's not making it any better. Because they say it was the perfect murder. But I'm not buying it. And that's what's keeping me up. As I try to figure out who killed Tom Wales and why haven't they been brought to justice after all these years. This is episode one. Corporate Politics. I'm your host, David Payne. There are people out there who know who we killed will you. never give up our search for the truth. We will never I have no idea. Up. It could have been a, a vacuum cleaner salesman. I never thought I'd be here 15 years later. I'm sitting in my Seattle home office right now with a severe case of writer's block. The story I want to tell, the one I don't know how exactly to begin, has literally consumed my life the last six months. It's got me chasing down serial killers, pouring through archives for missing witnesses, and trespassing in the deep, dark woods of Washington. This story is about a guy who, in a lot of ways, was just like me. A father of two grown children, an attorney, and a federal prosecutor, although I have long since left that profession. Sixteen years ago, this guy, a man named Tom Wales, was also sitting in his home office in Seattle. And I guarantee you that as he sat at his desk that night, he had no idea what was coming. On October 11, 2001, after a full day at the office, Tom Wales returned here to his home in Seattle's Queen Anne neighborhood. He spent the evening, as he often did, on the computer. At 10.40 that night, neighbors called 911, saying they'd heard gunshots. Seattle police responded immediately, scouring the crime scene. They discovered several shell casings, but no murder weapon. The killer had shot whales in the neck and torso, then vanished into the night. That was Sarah James of NBC News describing the fateful night that Tom Wales was gunned down in his basement by someone hiding out in his backyard. To this day, no arrests have been made in the case, even though it's probably received more federal manpower 
than any non-political, single-person homicide in modern history. What's more, there's currently a $1 million reward from the FBI. And despite that, unless you're from Seattle, you've probably never even heard of this case. And the thing that's been bugging me, the thing that's keeping me up at night, is why. This just in, you are looking at obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center, and we have unconfirmed reports this morning that a plane has... Everyone of a certain age remembers where they were when the planes hit the towers. Tom Wales was in Seattle, working for the U.S. Attorney's Office. Throughout the summer and early fall of 2001, right before he was murdered, Wales was managing the fallout of a criminal case he had had to dismiss because his evidence didn't stack up. I was in the newsroom in CNN's Atlanta headquarters. At that point in my career, I had left law to manage CNN Digital. Also in the CNN newsroom that day was a talented producer named Jody Gottlieb. Gottlieb lives in Seattle now, too, and I thought she would be the perfect person to help me tell this story. I met her in an East Side coffee shop where I pitched the idea of reinvestigating the murder of Tom Wales. That's great. Thank you. So what do you think? Cheers. You want to do this? <laughs> I'm up for it. You say that a little too cavalierly. No, I it's mean... It's going to be a big talk today. No, but what else are we going to do? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's that. <laughs> but do you think we can solve the case? I do. I'm pretty confident, given... Right, because the FBI hasn't solved it in 16 years, but Jody Gottlieb is on the case now. In reality, maybe we'll uncover things they haven't learned about the case. How hard could it be? How hard could it be? Right. How hard could it be? But Seattle's a close-knit community, especially to newcomers like us. And as we started to investigate, no one really seemed very interested in talking to us about it. In fact, the only person who seemed keen for us to dive in was one of Tom's best friends, Ralph Facitelli. You know... It was a joke that Tom had 12 best friends. Well, I spent a lot of time with him for a couple of years, you know, between before his death, because we were in the same place between ceasefire and in our personal lives. But all these best friends showed up at his service, you know, and everybody was Tom's best friend. And he wondered, how did this guy have time for everything? Ralph is in his early 60s, but he could easily pass for a man 20 years younger. He has one of those rare, full manes of shock white hair and the look of a New England sailor. Ralph has been a passionate advocate for Tom and the advancement of this case for years, and he's openly concerned about the lack of progress on it. I'm curious, Ralph, when you bring that up, what sort of, when you've told people what we're doing, what people have said about it, what's um, the reaction? I think, for the most part, everybody who knows Tom knew what a special person he was, and everybody's frustrated and confused and even angered that somebody hasn't been prosecuted. So if we can do a quality credential piece that can help create, put the pieces together and synthesize it in the hindsight of time and give it a whole fresh new look and raises the chance that there'll be more momentum given to this and increase the chances that somebody will be prosecuted, then people are all for it. Nobody is telling me under the cuff 
back off on helping these guys with the podcast because there's something going on that you don't know. Not that I'm the center of the world on this, but I'm close enough and knew of him and know the players involved that I think you would have, some of us would have been tipped off and said, no, no, no. But as we got into the case, that wasn't quite true. In fact, two months into our investigation, the proverbial stirring of the pot, the FBI even called and asked us to cease and desist our investigation. So, that was weird. That was weird. So we just got a call from at the FBI, and she wants us to stand down on this investigation, not pursue it any further, that they have something working that is going to take another, what'd she say, eight months? Yeah. They claim that the investigation is active and that, in fact, our meddling around with it could jeopardize this investigation. Well, I in no way want to obstruct anything the FBI isn't doing. But after 16 years, when someone says stand down, that makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up and say no. So I guess I don't have to ask? No, we're going. (laughs) I mean, you can ask me, but we're moving forward. With vigor. Fair enough. And guess what? We weren't the first journalists who had been told to back off. We reached out to our former colleague, CNN's senior legal correspondent, Jeffrey Tubin. He had done his own independent investigation of the Tom Wales case 10 years ago for The New Yorker magazine. When we arrived at CNN headquarters in New York, it was 7.30 a.m., 4.30 a.m. Seattle time. But Tubin's already been on the air for two and a half hours, talking about the Trump-Russia investigation. Here, come on in, Carolyn. And the coffee arrives. And the coffee arrives. How many uh, iterations of coffee have you had this morning? Uh, I, just just this coffee? one so far. Uh, We're going to get you jacked up on caffeine. That's what we want. Yeah. That's what we want. All, All right. Uh, we are good. I'm just going to get a day check. Today is Halloween, October 31st. It's 8.05 in the morning, and we're here with Jeff Tubin. Glad to be here. Good morning, Jeff. How are you? Good. So what's today's big news? It's all about Manafort. It's all about Manafort and the now infamous George Papadopoulos. Right? Who would have thought? Who would have thought? (laughs) I spent the day learning how to say Papadopoulos. Tubin's domain includes law and politics, and the Tom Wales case was replete with both. We'll have more to say on those politics later. But we were pleased to learn that when Tubin looked into this case a decade ago, he had been sucked into the matrix as deeply as we were. So how did you start your investigation? You were living in New York. How did that come together? Well, there were really two parts of my investigation. The first was related to the immediate political controversy of the day. And so that was a big part of the investigation. But the part that really started to interest me even more was the murder itself. And who was Tom Wales? Why was he murdered? Who were the suspects? And that, to me, that's what really stays with me to this day. It's an old-fashioned whodunit. It's an old-fashioned whodunit. And it's, I mean, it's just incredibly mysterious. Did you get much cooperation from the FBI or Seattle PD? I got a lot of cooperation from the Seattle PD. The FBI was much more reluctant. What was so frustrating to me about the FBI is they kept saying this was an active investigation with agents assigned. 
But I could see no evidence that anyone was doing anything. And, you know, as a former prosecutor myself, you know, I know what's involved in an investigation and I know how cases are investigated. And six years after a murder, it's hard to see what you could be doing that you couldn't have done a year later or three years later. And to this day, I remain puzzled by what they say they were doing for all those years. Would you be shocked to know that the FBI has told us it's still an active investigation and they can't talk to us? Well, you know, I was appalled by the FBI's failure to talk a decade ago, and I'm even more appalled 10 years later because, you know, if whatever you're doing hasn't worked for six years and it hasn't worked for 16 years, maybe you ought to try to do something different and get some attention for the case and, again, try to shake the tree and see if going public with what you have can help because you've failed so far. you have any theories as to why the FBI would not want to do that? Well, I think the most obvious theory is they're embarrassed by their failure. And by saying that they're still investigating – they can claim that it's too sensitive to talk rather than talk to journalists and answer questions about why have you failed for so long. I was just going to follow up with that. It's a little bit more than they just don't want to talk to us. They've actually asked us to stand down. That we might jeopardize oh, some God's sake. ongoing yeah. investigation. And we assured them we weren't going to back down. Well, I mean, you know, uh, you know, having been a prosecutor and been on, on both sides of this, it is possible when that journalists can interfere. But after 16 years, I don't think so. I think this counts as a failed investigation. And the more sunlight that can be applied to it, the better, as far as I'm concerned. But did the FBI really want sunlight on this case? Again, I kept coming back to, why has there been no arrest after so much effort? Was this a failed investigation because there was simply not enough evidence, as some would say? Or was it a failed investigation for some other reason? Despite the official FBI silence on the case, we had been able to rouse retired agents, Seattle Police Department officials, friends, and former DOJ lawyers who are all willing to share both on and off record their frustrations with this case, the tunnel vision, the wasted resources, the tensions between local and federal law enforcement, the internal politics at DOJ and the FBI. They had all conspired to lead us to where we are today. No indictment, and no justice. Retired ASAC David Gomez was one of those agents. A company man for sure, but someone who was refreshingly candid about what had happened so far and what could be done to find justice for Wales. We arranged to meet him at the historic Washington Athletic Club in downtown Seattle, where the only room we can find is adjacent to the eighth floor racquetball court. My name is David Gomez. I'm a retired special agent with the FBI. 
At the time I retired, I was the assistant special agent in charge of the Seattle field office, and I ran primarily the national security programs. How many years were you in the Seattle office? I was in the Seattle office from December 2005 until November 2011, and I had uh, 28 years in the FBI total. I was not David Gomez is in his mid-50s by my estimation. Now on his second career as an analyst for a wireless carrier, Gomez is sporting a Tommy Bahama shirt despite the 40-degree weather. When he joined the Seattle field office of the FBI in 2005, the case was already four years old. And Gomez is clearly frustrated at his bureau's inability to close this case. You know, I'm always reminded of the show 48 Hours, where they basically make the case, if you haven't figured it out in 48 hours, you never will. Uh, Yeah, that's pretty much so. I have been on some crime scenes where the detectives, when they realized that there was no good suspects, were you know, kind of at a loss to say, well, this one's going to be hard to work. And clearly this was a case that was going to be hard to work. I think what's unusual in a major case is to have such a small team, the same team, working the same single case for such a long period of time because it doesn't allow for any diversity of views and conflicting views and contradictory views and other possible avenues. It's like and I recall using this phrase at the time that I says this case has become inbred in the sense that it's feeding on itself in terms of investigative possibilities. And that's not a criticism of the agents because that is something that happens. And one of the solutions that was proposed at the time was bringing new agents in, replacing the old case agents in an attempt to bring new life to an investigation. Whether it was new blood or fresh eyes, whatever you want to call it, this case could certainly benefit from it. But when the investigation started 16 years ago, the problem was too many eyes. Everyone wanted this case. Immediately after the shooting, both the FBI and Seattle police claimed jurisdiction because, let's face it, at the start and even still today, it isn't at all clear why Tom Wales was killed. Was it in the line of duty, which would make it a federal case? Or was it just a run-of-the-mill murder, which would make it the purview of the Seattle police? I wanted to know if this jockeying had any impact on solving the case. The chief of police at the time was a man named Gil Kurlikowski, and I asked Ralph to connect us. This is David. Hey. Hey. How are you? Good. Good. I'm very good. I'm sorry about the confusion. That's all right. Well, thank you. Thank you for taking the time. And, no, thanks. I was really uh, pleased that Ralph made the introduction. In this small community of Seattle, it will not surprise you that Kurlikowski was a friend of Tom's. On old grainy TV footage, he is seen at the crime scene. Can you tell me what happened? Well, I knew Tom, and it's only about five blocks from our house on Queen Anne, so I got called that evening and a communications section of the Seattle Police Department said, you know, there's been an FBI agent that has been shot. I asked for the name and where it was located and the dispatcher or the person in communication said it was Tom Wales. I said, you know, he's not an FBI agent, he's an assistant United States attorney. And so I immediately went to the scene that night and Tom was still alive at the hospital. And then I went to the hospital 
that's where Tom passed away. Did anybody have a chance to talk to him? I understand he was shot in the throat, so just wondering if that happened. To my knowledge, I don't recall anyone talking about any words or anything that Tom had said. I want to ask Kurlikowski about how the case was initially managed. So can you explain to me how this case was investigated between all the various agencies? Did Seattle stay involved after the initial investigation all these many years? So we developed a partnership in that the FBO, and of course it would be a task force, and there would be people assigned from the Seattle Police Department and the FBI. But that we wanted to, we bifurcated the investigation that the FBI looked at all of Tom's work as a result of being an assistant United States attorney. We looked at Tom's personal life, his involvement in the the reasonable common sense gun measures, those things. And of course, despite best intentions, that bifurcation of the case where Seattle would look at Tom's personal life and the FBI would look at his professional life, that may have had unintended consequences. And early on in this case, it was clear that that would lead to finger-pointing and blame. Listen carefully to how Agent Gomez describes that impact. Do you know how pristine the crime scene was maintained? No, I don't. But I know that there were a lot of allegations and rumors that the crime scene had been contaminated, as the detective might refer to it or the investigator would refer to it. And a crime scene becomes contaminated when too many people enter the crime scene to view what's going on. So normally in a homicide crime scene, you'd maintain a log of who enters and who leaves and the time that they were there, how much time they spent at the crime scene. In these days, forensic evidence such as hairs and fibers becomes critical. So all of that, anytime someone enters a crime scene, he's going to leave something of himself there. And that's what makes it problematic when you have high-ranking police officials who, or friends and family of the victim who knew him and would want to see that crime scene, other assistant United States attorneys and so on, uh, that may have responded to the scene hearing that Tom had been shot. It does make it difficult. Could this have been the problem all along? Too many people tramping around the crime scene? No one keeping proper logs to eliminate innocent footprints, fiber, and DNA? Had this case been tainted from the very start? And is this the reason the case has never been solved? There was uh, also an allegation that the casings had been contaminated, and when they did a DNA swab of the casings, they detected one of the police officers' DNA. Yes, again, one of the principles of handling evidence at a crime scene is that you always wear gloves. uh, This was all starting to feel very O.J. Simpson-like. But in our case, it wasn't defense attorneys complaining about tainted evidence. It was actually the FBI. And what about the Seattle Police Department's point of view? Well, over the course of our investigation, we heard time and time again how it was the FBI that had mismanaged the case. Something echoed with forthright self-awareness by Agent Gomez. Uh, you know, again, I, I, I don't want to criticize the case agents themselves, but I do recognize the tunnel vision and the bias that can occur in this and other cases. So... You have to admit that as a possibility. Because the way the case was being run, it was like they they didn't have any adult supervision in terms of how a case was. Because a manager's job... The carping that would come to characterize this case wasn't limited to police and the FBI. 
As the years went by with no closure, tensions and frustrations arose between the FBI and the Department of Justice, too. Those fissures came to a head in 2006, when FBI headquarters conducted an inspection of the Seattle field office and the Tom Wales case by extension, five years after the crime. I know that when I got to the FBI Seattle office in 2005 and experienced that first inspection in 2006, one of the issues was management at the first level of the case. And that particular manager was cited for his management of that case. and uh, Or lack of management. Or lack it? of management. But they were, again, there was these were allegations by the case agents. What caught my attention was that it appeared that there was a a coup d'etat occurring on the, on the squad, a mutiny, the saying that they don't want the supervisor, they wanted a new supervisor. And there weren't only problems between the case agents and their line supervisor, but between Seattle's senior management and the prosecutor from DOJ. There were some findings that came about as of that. The findings have to be resolved. We were re-inspected one year later. But in the interim, we had had issues with Mr. Clymer, who was the prosecutor, we being the executive management of the uh, FBI Seattle office, because we wanted to do, in fact, what I had suggested. Mr. Clymer, as Agent Gomez refers to him, is Steve Clymer, a career AUSA whose most notable case was prosecuting the four police officers who had assaulted Rodney King in the L.A. riots. Just 34 years old at the time, Clymer was a rising star at DOJ, working out of D.C. and New York. And he had been assigned the case because the Seattle office had been recused from prosecuting a case involving one of their own. What Asak Gomez and his boss, special agent in charge Laura Laughlin, were suggesting was to replace the original case agents on the Wales case to get some new perspective. This was a suggestion that would put them square in the crosshairs of powerful forces in Washington, D.C., who were the case agents? At the time, the case was with Special Agent Ron Bone and uh, Special Agent Dave Souza, but there are still two case agents working on the case who work, and I won't mention their names at this point. But it was Ron Bone and Dave Souza that they were talking about replacing with a couple of new agents and maybe even adding some additional agents. We made that suggestion to Mr. Clymer, and he was adamantly opposed to replacing the case agent that was, he had utmost confidence in Ron Bone and Dave Souza as case agents and didn't want to see them replaced. And I think that that decision was taken all the way up to his superiors in justice and to the special agent in charge of the Seattle field office, Laura Laughlin at the time, to her superiors in, in Washington, D.C. And a decision was made at the director's level to move the case. Mueller's level? Yeah, exactly. Mueller's level, who was the director of the FBI, to move the case. You heard that right. That's the same Robert Mueller who is now special counsel in the Trump-Russia investigation. Mueller was the head of the FBI at the time. And a sign of how unusual this case was managed, a decision on who would lead the day-to-day investigation went all the way to his desk. Even more unusual was the fact that the request came from a DOJ attorney. Definitely, Steve Clymer opposed that decision and took it to his supervisors, who walked across the street from Justice to the FBI to talk to Mueller about it. Corporate politics. And the interesting thing is, I've never known, in my 28 years, I never knew a prosecutor 
who exerted that kind of control over the FBI. I came into the Bureau at a time when agents would say, we don't work for the prosecutor, we work for the FBI, we provide evidence to the prosecutor, and he makes a decision whether he wants to prosecute, kind of an independence. Things changed over time. And it was clear that Steve Clymer saw himself as the director of this investigation and the manpower assigned it. It was, again, something I'd never seen before where a prosecutor had say over who and how many people were assigned to a particular case. So now I'm starting to wonder, was the reason this case has never been solved, not because of the mishandling of evidence at the scene, but something more mundane? Could it be as simple as the misguided micromanagement of a case from 3,000 miles away? And what happened to the bosses in middle management, to Laura Laughlin, the first female SAC in Seattle, who had the temerity to suggest that something wasn't working and that just maybe, maybe new eyes on the case 10 years ago would have been a good thing. I certainly think it had a negative impact on Laura Laughlin's opportunities for promotion to either a larger field office or back to headquarters as an assistant director because it directly reflected on the, it was a manifestation of the director of the FBI, Mr. Mueller's confidence and Laura Laughlin as a manager. And what about those case agents who went over their boss's head to complain about being taken off the case? What happened to them? Well, they stayed on the case and they kept pursuing their favorite theories. Theories that to this day remain unproven in a court of law. The problem was, is that, again, from my perspective, the agents themselves were so invested in the case that they saw that as punishment when in fact it wasn't. They probably would have been a good idea maybe to maintain their interest in the case as certainly as evidentiary experts in the history of the case, but bring in a new team. I think that that's why 16 years later we're still in the same spot. If you were assigning a cold case agent to look at the case now, would you go back all the way to the, to the beginning? Oh yeah, absolutely. I think that when you assign an old investigation, a cold case investigation to a new team of investigators, someone has to go back through and read the entire file from the beginning to the end because the answer to your questions is in the file someplace there. So that's exactly what we did. We went back to the beginning, the night of the crime. There was a promise made, dreamers believed. Next week on Somebody Somewhere... This is Emily. Hello. Oh, this is Emily? Sorry. It's not like you know me. No, it was so definitely pop, 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 like so in succession, people. quick. The word on the street is that there was a hitman that killed Tom. Somebody Somewhere is written and produced by Jody Gottlieb and me. It is a production of Rainstream Media Incorporated. Sound design, editing, and mixing has been provided by Resonate Recordings. If you're making your first podcast or if you're a seasoned veteran, it doesn't matter. These guys are both professional and personable, and we couldn't have done this show without them. Check them out at ResonateRecordings.com. Original score and voiceover work provided by Hallie Payne. Democracy is written and performed by Dysfunction, and I Don't Know is written and performed by Grapes. If you have any information regarding the Tom Wales case, 
please contact us via our website, sbswpodcast.com. And finally, if you enjoyed this podcast, please like and rate us on iTunes. It really helps. Thank you for listening. Force us into the